All right, thanks for your patience, everyone. Good evening, and welcome to the sixth annual Harrisburg Book Festival, proudly brought to you by the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. My name is Catherine Lawrence. I'm, I'm the owner of the bookstore, and we are delighted to welcome you all here, a full house this evening, for a fascinating and educational conversation with author Liza Mundy and our favorite Central Pennsylvanian interviewer, WITF's own Scott Lamar. So thank you both. I'll give a, a I'll tell you a little bit about both of these individuals who are gracing the stage here tonight. And I also want to say, very excitingly, we're actually recording this event. We do usually record our author talks for our Midtown Scholar podcast, but today we're actually doing a special smart talk recording. And this interview and the Q&A will become part of some future broadcast on WITF-FM with Scott Lamar for Smart Talk. So thank you, Smart Talk, for coming to be part of the festival. We'd also like to thank all of you for joining us for the festival. We hope you've been having as much fun as we've had so far this weekend. It's been a pleasure to host wonderful authors and engage with readers across central Pennsylvania over our shared love for history and literature. If you haven't had a chance to, please, <coughs> by the entrance, be sure to pick up one of our brochures. It lists our events of Sunday. We've got three great authors coming tomorrow as the concluding day of the festival. So hope to see you again for those talks, too. And as I say, I'd like to give a special thanks to WITF for today's program, our very own NPR and PBS radio station, TV station here in central Pennsylvania, and we're really proud to be partnering with them for this event. Let's give WITF a round of applause for their help in making this book festival a possibility. And a special thanks to Scott. Scott Lamar has worked in radio and television for more than 40 years. Currently, he is the host and executive producer of the daily Smart Talk news and public affairs program on WITF 89.5 FM and 93.3 FM. And they have been just this week celebrating their 10th anniversary on the air, which is a wonderful accomplishment. With Lamar acting as executive producer, Smart Talk has won more than a dozen Pennsylvania Associated Press Broadcast Awards. He often moderates and emcees public events and political debates or leads public discussions with political leaders, entertainers, and of course, authors. So we're really thrilled to have you for the interviewer here today. Liza Mundy, our guest of the evening, is a journalist and the author of four books, most recently Code Girls, as you see here. She is a former staff writer for the Washington Post, where she specialized in long-form narrative writing, and her work has won a number of awards. Her 2012 book, The Richer Sex, was named one of the top nonfiction books of 2012 by the Washington Post and a noteworthy book by the New York Times Book Review. Her 2008 book, Michelle, a biography of First Lady Michelle Obama, was a New York Times bestseller and has been translated into 16 languages. Her 2007 book, Everything Conceivable, received the 2008 Science and Society Award from the National Association of Science Writers as the best book on a science topic for a general audience. She lives in Arlington, Virginia with her husband and two children, just about a mile from Arlington Hill, where the Army code-breaking women worked. In Code Girls, the untold story of the American women code-breakers of World War II, Monday takes us behind the scenes to the over 10,000 women that secretly served as code-breakers during World War II. Nearly erased from history, she brings this hidden chapter of U.S. history back to life. 
The Washington Post has called the book irresistible. The Smithsonian says that Code Girls finally gives due to the courageous, courageous women who worked in the wartime intelligence community. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming Scott Lamar and Liza Mundy. Thank you for coming. Mundy, welcome to Harrisburg. Oh, thank you for having me. The title of the book, Code Girls, The Untold Story of the American Women Codebreakers of World War II. Why has it been an untold story? For two, well, for, for several reasons. Uh, this was a group of over 10,000 women who came to Washington to do this work. When they arrived, they were told that if they spoke to anyone about the work they were doing, they would be shot because it was wartime. And to divulge classified information would be an act of treason, and the penalty for treason was death. And they took that very, very seriously. And then after the war, they were told, thanks very much for your service. Don't ever tell anybody what you did. And they also took that very, very seriously. And so part of it was the women's uh, staunch uh, adherence to, uh, to the vow of secrecy. E and then when it became declassified in the 1980s, nobody tracked the women down and told them that it was finally okay to talk. And meanwhile, historians who began writing about World War II code breaking in the 70s and 80s um, really neglected uh, to tell the women's story. They really overlooked it. Uh, when, when the women came to Washington, they were told, if anybody asks what you do in these top secret barbed wire compounds, tell them that you're secretary. Tell them that the work you're doing is trivial and unimportant. Tell them that you empty waste baskets and sharpen pencils. So that's what they told them. And because they were women, people believed that the work they were doing had to be trivial. And the mistake that historians made even 50 years later was also assuming that the work they did was trivial. And it wasn't. It was of the utmost importance. And the men who worked with the code-breaking women, uh, men in the military as well, uh, knew and had a lot of respect for, for what they did. Plus, they also were fairly well paid for that crime, right? Right. Many of the women, including my central character, who was from Lynchburg, Virginia, had been school teachers. Uh, so these were school teachers who were sinking ships. And generally before the war, as school teachers, they made about $900 a year. That's how much my central character made teaching high school. And, and working for the U.S. government, they could make $1,600 a year or maybe get a raise to 17 or 18. By, you know, some of them were at 2000 by the end of the war. So, yeah, yeah. they got paid better. You know, one of the most fascinating part we were just talking about this, but uh, one of the most fasc part, fascinating parts of the book, you talked about uh, they were sworn to secrecy. But even 70 years later, many of the characters in the book, call them characters, the women co-breakers, were still a re little reluctant to talk about it, weren't they? Yes, in many cases they were. Again, my central character, Dot Braden, who is still alive at 98, uh, went four years ago when I was trying to talk her into talking to me, uh, it, it, I was there with her son, who her beloved uh, eldest son, who you know, who she dotes upon and trusts. And even with him in the room, it took us half an hour to coax it out of her. And finally, you know, she wanted to talk about it. You know, she wanted l legitimately to get credit for what she did, uh, but she was still wasn't sure. And so after about a half an hour, she said, "Well, uh, you know, what are they going to do at this point? Put me in prison?" And I said, well, <laughs> I said, well, at your age, it would probably be a nice prison. And she has a very good sense of humor, so she thought that was funny. And yeah. Well, let's go back before the United States was even involved in World War II officially. Now we were supplying uh, a lot of materials to uh, to Great Britain, 
and uh, in the European countries. But the country, the military started, well, maybe it wasn't the military, but there was recruitment of many women, as you mentioned, teachers and some others as well. But uh, many of them were being recruited even before the war began. Why? Well, because the federal government was a relative equal opportunity employer. So women who were college educated, who wanted a career other than teaching school, uh, would, would sometimes take the civil service exam and would just apply for federal service. And at that time, before the war, the Army and the Navy both had very small code-breaking bureaus. They were working on uh, Japanese code systems, German code systems, Italian, you know, they were starting to look at the fascist governments of Europe, but very small, non-prestigious bureaus. And uh, in particular, the Army's bureau had a, was headed by a man named William Friedman, who was married to a female codebreaker, so he had a lot of respect for women and their intellect. And he would scour the civil service rolls for high scores in math and languages and recruit women into those code-breaking operations. So the Army's operation in particular had a number of women working for it. One of them, Genevieve Brochin, made a very significant break in 1940, before we were in the war, uh, breaking a code system that Japanese diplomats in Europe were using to communicate with Tokyo. It was a system called Purple. Uh, and, and she had the central insight that would enable us to read the diplomats' communications all during World War II. And then the Navy had a woman named Agnes Driscoll who had actually enlisted during World War I when there was a brief period women could enlist. And then she stayed on as a civilian. And she spent the 1930s diagnosing how the Japanese Navy encoded and then enciphered its fleet code, really figuring that system out. And that played a big role in our victory in the Battle of Midway. And we're going to talk about all those things, but I want to take a step back even since uh, you mentioned World War One and Agnes. Uh, that One of the things that they did find out was that Germany had offered Mexico, Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico if Mexico would invade the United States. Right. That was the famous Zimmerman telegram. And, and because we didn't have much code-breaking ability prior to World War One, it was the British who who broke that uh, who broke that particular telegram, and uh, we we then had to really get up to speed in our code breaking abilities because England and Europe had a long centuries old tradition of reading each other's mail, as they put it. But we were sort of you know babes in the wood when it came to that kind of intelligence work. So we had to we had to play catch up. So over the ensuing years, we get up to 1939, 1940, as we said. The United States was starting to recruit some some code breakers. What kind of women were they looking for? So they were looking for college educated women for the most part. And and up until the war, if you were a college educated woman in the United States, the only job you could reliably expect upon graduation was teaching school, which is great if you want to be a school teacher, but not if if you want to go into a different field. So uh, so they wanted women who had good liberal arts education, uh, languages, Latin, French, you know, an understanding of how language works and how, you know, linguistic patterns, an understanding of that. But also there's a fair amount of math involved. Uh, so they were looking for women who had had the benefit of good liberal arts education, who could keep their mouth shut. And they were also looking for uh, undergraduates who had what we would call today grit who had resilience, the ability to tolerate failure, to keep coming back and back at a problem. And so the Navy asked math and, uh, and astronomy professors at the Seven Sisters Colleges, as well as Goucher 
uh, Connecticut College, Wheaton College, to identify young women who had these characteristics. And they were quietly called in uh, and asked two questions. Do you like crossword puzzles, and are you engaged to be married? <laughs> and if they answered yes to the first and no to the second, they would be invited to take a secret naval uh, correspondence course in code breaking. And a lot of them lied. A lot of them were engaged. But whatever they did were being invited to do sounded pretty interesting. So, But in the book, you also mentioned there were a couple other characteristics they were looking for. Non-Jewish. Yeah. And attractive. Why? Oh, you know, I don't know if they were specifically looking for attractive, but they did make comments on the women photos that they had to submit with their application. So that was maybe more of an after-the-fact sort of thing. Although the way that the Army recruited all these school teachers, speaking of attractiveness, was to send its handsomest young officers, its handsomest young Army officers, to lurk in post offices and hotels uh, uh, with the thinking that they could lure these young school teachers to Washington, that the women would be thinking they could make a marriage to a man who looked like the army officer. So they were a bit obsessed with marriage, I'd say. Uh, Non-Jewish, I think. They, uh, that, yes. Today we know why, but what about then? Right. So before the war, the, na the Navy was very discriminatory uh, you know, throughout the war, really, in who they would recruit. And, and, and when, when the waves admitted African-American women, the Navy did not accept the African-American waves, the Army would have an African-American code-breaking unit. But to get back to the non-Jewish, particularly before the war, uh, they were very stuffy about Jewish or anybody from a country with family origins in a country that was now occupied. But because beca before we got into the war, they were afraid that if you recruited people from these countries or, or who were Jewish, that they would be inclined to get us into the war somehow as though they would have the ability to do that. But. So we've talked about the run-up to the war. Everything changed December 7th, 1941. Uh, but you know, one of the questions that there's always been these conspiracy theories about uh, Pearl Harbor and why we didn't know about Pearl Harbor ahead of time. With the co-breakers who were very good, very successful, why didn't we know about Pearl Harbor? So what had happened was that, so Agnes Driscoll spent the 1930s diagnosing how the Japanese naval fleet could work. We understood that it was what they could call an enciphered code system, and I can explain what that is if you want. But uh, So we understood how it worked, but they had code books that were like dictionaries of the words, and those code books changed every, every so often, as well as cipher books of, of numbers that would be added to the code, to the code groups. And as a secure practice, they would change those, those books periodically. And so right before Pearl Harbor, they changed the code books. Uh, so we had been reading the code system, and suddenly we couldn't anymore. We had to rebuild an understanding of what the code group stood for. So it, it, the code system had gone dark to us temporarily. And we would get it back by the, by the Battle of Midway, which was seven months after Pearl Harbor. We would... We would have rebuilt the code books, but it had gone dark in that period. But there was no hint of any Japanese plans to attack uh, an American military installation? Well, we knew that something was going to happen in the Pacific, and we knew that there was going to be a t an attack. And certainly the, the, the Navy's intelligence apparatus at the time was very disorganized. Uh, I mean, our m we didn't have any intelligence for the most part. We didn't have a CIA. We didn't have an NSA. We didn't have Director of National Intelligence. So we had very little in the way of intelligence gathering. And so certainly it could be argued that we should have figured out 
that if there was something going to happen in the Pacific, if, if, J if Japan was going to attack somewhere, it might be where we had our almost our entire Pacific fleet uh, moored and anchored uh, because we didn't have any torpedo nets or barrage balloons or really anything protecting the fleet. Mm -hmm. So the conspiracy theories just to put that to rest. Yeah, put that to rest. Put that yeah. to rest completely. Yes. Okay. Disorganization, so yes. Conspiracy theory, no. But so nothing's changed. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. <laughs> in many cases, maybe some things haven't changed. Well, we have 17 intelligence agencies. Well, now. there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so after Pearl Harbor, the United States is in war against Japan, and Germany declares war on the mm -hmm. United States uh, three days later. Yep. And we're monitoring uh, both Japan, Germany, other countries as well. Absolutely. But those two are the, the, the main focus at that time. At that time, there had to be a lot of recruitment for code breakers. You had to bring, as you said, at one time, it was 10,000. Uh, but we know that most of the men at the time were joining the military. But was there any hesitation at all about bringing more women on board? I don't think there was any hesitation, and I think that's really important, that the, the allied countries were more willing to be inclusive and bring in women than the Axis countries were. So I when I was doing my... Uh, research in the National Archives in College Park, I actually found a naval memo. Uh, the Navy had been recruiting for years from MIT, from Yale, from the Ivy League for its small code-breaking bureau, and they were generating memos, and they would recruit men before the war. That's what they you know, preferred to do, educated men. And I literally found a memo where, uh, the month before Pearl Harbor, where some naval bureaucrat typed, new source, women's colleges. So the, 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 the light bulb moment went on over somebody's head. If the educated men are going to be unavailable to us because they're fighting, because they're shipping out, let's see what these educated women can do. And meanwhile, William Friedman, as I said, for the Army, had been hiring women all along. And so there, there really was no hesitation about hiring women. They, they were not sure that women could keep a secret. And they were not sure, you know, how much women could do in the way of, you know, this really difficult work. But pretty quickly as the women came in, came in, and we broke more systems and we needed more people to exploit them, and the women proved that they could do the work, any remaining men who were doing it were shipped out, actually. So the, the, the big, big compounds in Washington became virtually all female. All right, so let's talk about the big compounds in mm -hmm. Washington. As was mentioned in the introduction, I did not realize that you lived only a mile yeah. from Arlington House. Neither did I until <laughs> I started reporting, yeah. I wondered whether <laughs> that was part of the motivation for no, writing the book. No, no, no. That was just a coincidence? No, it was a coincidence, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So talk about these installations as, uh, that they, they eventually put up. Yeah, so, you know, again, I live in the D.C. area now where we have 17 intelligence agencies, and if the CIA needs, like, an off campus site for a secure conference. There's any number of facilities like that in Northern Virginia but and Maryland, but there was nothing like that in World War II. And all of a sudden, both the Army and the Navy need large compounds for thousands of people doing the work that computers would do now in many cases. And they didn't have anything. They needed them. They needed facilities that were off the beaten path. They thought Washington might get bombed, uh, and, and but pretty accessible to Washington. So it turned out that girls' schools, uh, that a couple of girls' schools were provided the perfect site. Um, and so uh, this was back in the day of what was called junior colleges, uh, back in the day when it was thought that 
uh, that you didn't want women to get too educated, that too much education was bad for women. So Arlington Hall, before the war, had been a junior college where a young woman could board and get maybe a couple years of high school and then a couple years of kind of college, you know, some English, some French, some music, some deportment, some typing, some horseback riding, you know, that sort of thing. And, and so the Army kicked all the girls out, took over the facility, and, and, and built huge temporary buildings and moved the school teachers in and, and turned it into a top secret intelligence gathering facility. And the Navy would ultimately need something similar, and so they took over a girls' school on Nebraska Avenue in D.C., where the Department of Homeland Security is headquartered now. And uh, it kicked those uh, – Mount Vernon Seminary had been – uh, really a place where daughters of members of Congress were educated. A lot of Washington sort of muckety-mucks sent their daughters there. They kicked those girls out, and the girls had to take classes in Garfinkel's department store until, uh, until they could find a new place to, to study. And, and the Navy took over that facility. There's a chapel there. If you ever drive on Nebraska Avenue um, from America University over to Connecticut, Take a look on the right, and you can see it. You can still see the chapel where all the women were sat down and told that they would not to think that they wouldn't be shot just because they were female if they <laughs> talked about their work. They all remember that. Uh, again, it's, it's such a different time, and to think that you know this was unprecedented, that the United States had been attacked, and as you mentioned, uh, the, the you know, su suspicions that the, the possibility that Washington could be bombed mm -hmm. or that uh, the United States could be attacked from the East Coast. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these women, so many women descending on Washington, Washington area, they had to find a place to live. Mm -hmm. And that was a real challenge, wasn't it? Absolutely. And the other thing about Arlington, where I live, we, have, uh, we still have, a lot of them have been renovated now, but we have a lot of two- and three-story garden apartment buildings, just brick apartment buildings. And what I had also never realized is that most of them were built to house these women because of this influx of women during the war. So they were they were boarding in people's in people's homes. I mean, that it was like an early version of Airbnb, right? If you had if you had <laughs> a basement or you had an attic or you had a spare bedroom, you would be asked to put up these women. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt had a big, uh, really dorm built called Arlington Farms uh, on on property now where Arlington Cemetery is. Uh, there were women living in group houses. There were a couple of Navy women living above the Francis, uh, above the Key Bookstore. I don't know if people remember that in D.C. And they they had some deal where they could use the telephone. You know, they could borrow books if the bookstore staff could use their uh, bathroom. And I mean, really, they were scrambling for housing anywhere they could find it. You mentioned uh, Dorothy Dot Brayton from Lynchburg, Virginia. She's probably the one person in the book that you follow the, mm -hmm. the most, and she was a superstar. She was a superstar, but there were others. First oh, yeah. of all, let's start, start with Dot, Dot Braden. Why did you follow Dot? Well, I followed Dot for a bunch of reasons. She's, um, she's alive, so I could <laughs> interview her. Well, I mean, I say that because a number of the women I write about, I, I relied on oral histories that they had left. Because these are women, Dot's 98. Uh, she was 94 when I started my reporting, and I didn't always have the advantage of, of, of the woman still being alive. Uh, so with some of the other characters, I had to rely on oral histories or memorabilia or memoirs that, that they might have written. Uh, but with Dot, she's, she's a good raconteur. She had a good memory of her, uh, of her traveling to Washington and of the work that she did and the friendships that she, um, that she formed, uh, although she did not realize how important the code-breaking effort she was part of was. She did not fully apprehend the importance of her work. Uh, and uh, she has a good sense of humor. 
Uh, I was able to get her full personnel record, so I was able to read her background check that was done at Randolph-Macon, professors at Randolph-Macon Women's College, as well as the superintendent of the school systems where she worked. So I had a lot of supplementary information on her that could supplement her recollections, and that was important to substantiate. The, these women were remembering things from 70 and 75 years ago, and also she's very representative of the, uh, particularly of the Army's operation. A young school teacher, 23 years old, plucky, patriotic, no experience in code breaking, and she came to Washington, and within, you know, within a month, she was literally sinking ships. And none of the women had an idea what they were doing when they went to Washington, right? No, no. Of the ones who had been recruited at their universities by the Navy and had spent their senior year taking the correspondence course, they at least knew that they were training to become code breakers. When Dot walked through the doors of the Virginia Hotel, the Army at that point was recruiting uh, in public, and so they couldn't even tell her what she was signing up to do for the War Department. So yeah, she came to Washington without an inkling of what she would be doing, and, and the first thing she had to do was sign a uh, loyalty oath and then a secrecy oath, agreeing that whatever it was, she would be shot if she told people mm. what it was. Now, you talk about the Army and the Navy several times, uh, but when they first came, the women first came to Washington, there were no women in the military at that time. Right. Right. So how did that come up? Yes, and the Army women, like Dot, would remain civilians. The Army preferred to have its code-breaking force civilian, and that was an interesting choice. It meant that some really gifted women who were just 22 or 23 could be promoted to become the head of a unit, and that really did happen. So that worked well. Uh, but the Navy wanted its women to be in uniform, to be subjected to military hierarchy. Uh, so people may remember that the WAVES, women, women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Service, that was created during World War II was a tipping point for women in the military. And, and the Navy didn't necessarily want the women to be fully part of the Navy. And there were a lot of battles to make sure that this wasn't just an auxiliary, uh, to make sure that the women would be permitted to wear navy blue. At first, the Navy didn't want their uniforms to be navy blue like the men's. And, and there were really battles about these details. Uh, but once the women, um, the women recruited from the universities then became naval officers. They learned how to shoot pistols. They learned how to command. Uh, there was a lot of conversation about women's leadership and proving that women could lead. Uh, and so when they entered the, that naval compound, they did so in naval uniforms. And those uniforms were important. They were in, beautiful. In, in yeah. the, the Navy's eyes, they actually used them to recruit. Yeah, and, and it worked. And, and, uh, and you know, the, the Army created the wax. Uh, which, which is also very important. They didn't have, they had some wax in the Army code-breaking facility, but not, not as many. But the Navy women considered themselves superior uh, because, their, because their, their uniforms were better looking. And also there was a rumor that the, the, the WAC um, uniforms were khaki, and there was a rumor that you also had to wear khaki underwear. And the, and the Navy women were proud that they, that they could wear their own underwear. <laughs> so what did these uniforms look like? Oh, they were beautiful. They were designed uh, by, um, I think the pronunciation is, um, is Mainbacher, if I'm correct, uh, uh, a French, um, French and English designer. And uh, they, were, they were really carefully designed, uh, a beautiful six-panel gourd skirt and very, very form-fitting and flattering. Uh, the women were very proud of their uniforms. So as we mentioned earlier, uh, Japan and Germany were the main focus. Uh, this probably is a little bit easier to explain on paper mm -hmm. in the book, yeah. but the codes and how they broke the codes. I mean, there were so many women, mm -hmm. but 
maybe let's start off by talking about some of the codes that Japan and Germany were sending because I, I, I mean, I have to admit that yes. just reading yeah. over it, where yeah. you had maybe 20 or 25 numbers yeah. and how they broke these codes was so fascinating. Yeah. And you, you know why they needed very intelligent people to right. do it. But what kind of codes were Japan and Germany using maybe right. at the beginning of the war? And just again, to give people a sense of how important these coded messages were, you think about how we send texts and tweets and emails and Facebook updates and Instagram updates all the time, every day, through the airwaves. And a lot of it is encrypted. Like, we hope that Amazon's encrypting it. We hope that our banks are encrypting this information that's being sent through the air. And it was the same during the war, only it was sent by radio. So uh, generally by Morse code um, through the airwaves and public airwaves. So you can intercept from the public airwaves the enemy's messages and bring them to your compound and try to break them. And every diplomat, every military commander, uh, Admiral Donitz, who's commanding every single German U-boat, micromanaging the movement of his U-boats, they're all sending these messages. And, and everybody wants an unbreakable code system. So everyone is different uh, and, and gets changed. So the Germans, if you've seen the imitation game, you might know that the Germans were using a machine called the Enigma machine. It was a handy little battery power machine that didn't have to be plugged in. And it would scramble the letters of a German message. And, and every day or two days, the, the rotors would be moved around. They would be the machine would be set in different ways to scramble it in a different way. And we had to unscramble that by um, really developing early computer menus. That were that, that, and it was uh, ultimately American women who were doing that. So, and that's just the German system. So that's scrambling letters. Uh, and, and the Japanese had a completely different, sort of more old-fashioned but equally difficult system. They were using these giant code books and cipher books. And so a word like maru for supply ship would be rendered as a four- or five-digit code group, like 6281. And then another set of numbers would be added to it uh, from the cipher book. And that was an early version of encryption. They called it enciphering. And that number would be sent through the airwaves. And then Dot and, and her colleagues would have to strip out the encryptions. It'd strip out the number that had been added uh, using, using something called non-carrying addition. So they had to use non-carrying subtraction. And to strip it out to get down to the code group itself, and then they had to figure out what the code group stood for. Now you can hear how complicated that is, and you know, uh, as I'm reading the book, there are a lot of German Americans there, and you have a lot more Americans who probably could speak German than Japanese. Right. That had to be a right. challenge too. Very much so. And so the women from the universities who knew German, they were snatched up in order to translate the Enigma messages because. You, a cer to a certain point, a machine could unscramble it if you had set the settings right. So, again, a, a certain part of it was math and early computer menus. But once the message came out, was restored to its original form and came out in German, then you needed people who understood German who could actually translate the message. And so there were women from Wellesley and Smith and Radcliffe who had been recruited by the Navy who were translating those messages. And, and it was even harder to find a uh, Japanese speaker. Um, and... and American military men were were trained. The, the army set up a couple of um, of Japanese language institutes. Uh, Sumner Redstone was actually um, one of the uh, mm. translators, um, and uh, and and but also they recruited uh, 
missionaries. So people who had graduated from Bible colleges uh, in the South, there was Bethany College in West Virginia turned out a lot of uh, missionaries who had spent time in Asia, and they were likely to know Japanese as well. So it was actually a woman named Virginia Adderholt who had been recruited from Bethany College who understood Japanese, uh, who read the Japanese surrender message before anybody else. And we're skipping over a lot here because, as you said, these codes changed all the time, like constantly. And it was, like a crossroad puzzle, much, much more difficult, right? Yeah, yeah because crossroad puzzles are designed to be solved. I mean, it may not feel that way when you're trying to, but you know, the little clues and incentives are built in to sort of keep you going. And a code system is the exact opposite. Everybody wants to develop an unbreakable system. That's, you know, the hope is that you will never solve it. So it is, it like, when they would recruit the women, they, they certainly wanted people who enjoyed puzzles, but it was also very important to be able to tolerate frustration and failure, and that was very stressful. I mean, ma many of the top code breakers really had, uh, ultimately had mental breakdowns. Yeah, you talked about yeah. that, that uh, throughout the book, many of the, the women code breakers, they had mixed feelings about it because um, a lot of them were having good times. Yeah. They were, you know, they developed friendships. They were able to go out and socialize, even though they couldn't tell anyone, right. but uh, tell anyone what they were doing. But they had mixed feelings because a lot of them were having good times, but at the same time, they knew what they were doing, that l people's lives depended on it. American lives, they wanted to save, but actually some of the codes they were breaking would lead to the deaths of other people. Sure, it was a very complicated work that they were doing. So they knew that their brothers and their boyfriends were crossing the Atlantic or were out there on aircraft carriers and destroyers in the Pacific. I mean, they knew that acutely. And some of them were able to track the progress of their brother's ships. One of the women that I interviewed was actually the watch officer in the Navy office that um, when they got a message saying that her own brother's ship was about to be hit by kamikaze. Uh, so that's, you know, that's the enormity of the kind of work that they were doing. And they remembered also, particularly the beginning of the war, when the wolf packs were out there in the Atlantic, the German wolf packs, the submarines, uh, the U-boats, uh, when, when an American ship would be lost, the, it was just a terrible, just the, the effect on the country's morale. I mean, it was a disaster, obviously. And they remembered that their commanding officers would come down and yell at them. They just felt terrible responsibility. Anytime a convoy went down or anytime a ship went down or they were unable to get the key, uh, you know, for that couple of days for the Enigma messages, if, they, if, the, if the menu didn't give them the setting that, that they needed, they just felt enormous responsibility for these lives. And, and I think it's, imp what it's, it's hard for us to sort of maybe understand now is that women were made to feel very responsible for the morale of the troops. I mean, they were supposed to be writing letters to the boys, you know, and bring the boys home and keep morale for the troops. So these women felt enormous responsibility for the lives of the men. And almost all the women that uh, you profiled in the book or talked about in the book were writing to soldiers. Oh, yeah, yeah, they were, I mean, not just their brothers and their friends, but they were, they were keeping up morale. So Dot, for example, my central character, was writing six men simultaneously, and she was actually somewhat more reluctant to have that end up in the book <laughs> than, um, <laughs> than, 
on the truth of her code-breaking service, but I assured her that it was really actually quite normal, and it was. Uh, some women were writing as many as a dozen. Dot would eventually marry one of the men that she was writing, and some of the women would end up men, would end up marrying men who they had been writing during the war, who they had never even met in person until, you know, until the end of the war. Now, Dot's husband, I, I'm jumping ahead a lot here, but uh, Dot's husband, how many times did she see or meet him in person? You know, I asked her about this so many times because it just was hard for me to process. So at the beginning of – one of the reasons Dot signed up to come to Washington and break codes was because she had a college boyfriend who was pressuring her to get married, and he had sent her a diamond ring from his training camp. And she liked him, but she didn't want to marry him. She didn't want to follow him to training camp. She was looking for an out. And so coming to Washington to do war work was an out. <laughs> and, and then she started writing. There were other men who she knew. And, again, you're just encouraged to write any guy and keep his morale up. So she started writing another man. She, she had known him from Richmond, Jim Bruce, and he had sort of been courting her, but he was also courting a couple other women, she learned. And, and, so, uh, but, but, and so she had saved their correspondence, and I was really able to track the progress of their relationship through his letters back to her, and, which, and her letters were so important to him. Uh, but what's interesting is that from the time he left, and the time two years later when he came back, they did get engaged. They got engaged through their correspondence. And I kept saying to her, wait, he never came back, right? You, you, you never went there. You, you wanted to see each other during this period, but you got engaged. And, and she kept saying, yeah, yeah, you know, because that was just – it was the norm. Can't imagine that today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can't imagine the men writing several women, but you know that's <laughs> that's a different book. <laughs> you mentioned the the Battle of the Midway uh, at the time, late 1941, early 1942. Uh, the United States were crippled. I mean, the uh, the fleet in the Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor had been heavily damaged. Uh, Japan's goal was to cripple it completely, take it out of the war. That didn't happen. But Midway was a turning point, and these codebreakers code had just such an important role in that. Codebreaking was everything in the Battle of Midway, because just as you say, uh, you know, we had been crippled at Pearl Harbor, but our aircraft carriers were out of the harbor, uh, so we weren't destroyed at Pearl Harbor, and they were able to get, they were able to um, rehabilitate some of the ships that were that were damaged. So we we didn't lose certainly all all of our ships by any means. Uh, and, but the Japanese wanted to finish us off, and that, and that way they could get maybe a negotiated peace in the Pacific and, and be allowed to keep their holdings. Uh, and so that was, that was the point of Midway. And so in June of 1942, the Japanese sent a major fleet that was going to finish us off at Midway. But there was also a deception program. They were also sending a smaller fleet up to the Aleutian Islands. And the hope was that we would follow them up to the Aleutians, send most of our uh, remaining ships up there, and they could be waiting for us at Midway. And instead, we broke the messages. Uh, we learned that the uh, that this Japanese just set out to we're going to ambush us and destroy us. And so instead, we lay in wait at Midway, not going up to the Aleutians. Or I think we just sent maybe a few ships up there. Uh, but we were lying in wait for the Japanese, and it was a um, I think it was a three-day battle, and and uh, the outcome was very, very different from Pearl Harbor, and very different from what the Japanese had anticipated. If I remember correctly, four uh, Japanese uh, carriers, yeah. aircraft carriers, yeah. were sunk at, at Midway, right. so they they were crippled a lot of ways. But 
the, the code itself. I mean, one of the, the real enjoyment, things I enjoyed in the book is when someone like Dot or a lot of other superstar uh, code breakers you mentioned in the book, when they were discover that they have broken a code and they had that kind of information, what the Japanese were planning, this deception to the Aleutian Islands in Alaska, uh, that everyone would just be thrilled. So, I mean, that was just yeah. so important. It, it, that could have been a, that was a turning point for the <coughs> war. Yeah, and and I should also say that uh, that it, Midway was even better than that. In that that we we knew that I the code breaking is an even better story. That we knew that they were headed to uh, a geographical location that they had designated AF, and but we didn't know what AF stood for. And Joe Rochefort, who had been trained by Agnes Driscoll out in the Pacific, they thought it was Midway. But they couldn't convince Washington that it was midway. And so they designed this ruse in which we sent a message in the clear, as we called it, not a coded message in, you know, in, in English, saying um, midway is low on water, that they're low on water at midway, and the, they could, knowing that the Japanese would pick that up, and they did. And the Japanese then radioed back, oh, they're low on water at midway. And, and, and sure enough, they said AF. And so that was how Ro Joe Rochefort uh, and the naval officers in the Pacific proved to Washington that it was Midway that the Japanese were headed for. And, and so it was a group of really smart male code breakers who, who uh, did that. And, you know, th and there would also there would ultimately be a lot of bureaucratic infighting. People try to take credit for that. Uh, but they, all those men were very generous in their memoirs in pointing out that they had all been trained by Agnes Driscoll. And mm -hmm. so... Uh, her her hand was also part of that. Another significant intercepted code led to the death of uh, Japanese Admiral yep. Yamamoto. Now, Yamamoto was the architect of Pearl Harbor. So <laughs> you, don't hear, you don't hear very often about someone that higher rank or a commander, someone that high up in the military or in government who was actually killed. But that led, a code led to where he was going to be, and it, his plane was shot down. Yeah, and that's, that's, one of my, that's one of my favorite anecdotes in the book. Um, uh, so there was a group of women from Wellesley, and they were assigned to something called the Inter-Island Cipher. And if you think about the choices you make when you're sending messages, if it's a long message, you might send it by email. And if it's a short message to somebody, you might send it by text. And so the Inter-Island Cipher was something that the Navy set up basically sort of to text back and forth between ships or islands. And so the Wellesley women were set to work that cipher system, and it had a key that changed every month. So every month they had to work really hard for a couple of days to break back into the cipher system. And, and so just to give you a sense of the good times they would have in their off hours, there was a lot of alcohol in Washington uh, to, you know, to relieve the stress. And, and a lot of these women were living in group homes for the first time, and, and the, the naval officers were able to live out of the barracks, and, the, and so the Wellesley women were. And they would have these big blowout parties. And their commanding officer remembered with admiration uh, that they would come to him and say, well, when can we have our next party? And he would look at the wall map to see when the key was going to change. And he would say, well, you can have your next big blowout on such and such a day because that will give you two weeks to recover from your hangovers <laughs> before you have to break back into the key system. But what happened in April 43 is that a bunch of messages started coming down about Yamamoto's upcoming inspection tour. And some of the messages were traveling in the main Japanese naval fleet code that was being worked mostly um, on the spot by men in the Pacific.
But they were also sending supplementary information in the inner line cipher that the Wellesley women were reading. And so they worked closely together, the Wellesley women and the men out in the Pacific, to, com to exactly assemble his itinerary, when he was going to be in the air, when he was going to land in the Solomon Islands, when he was going to be on a minesweeper, back at the base, back up in the air. And they got it so precisely right that we were able to shoot his plane out of the air. And of course, we couldn't have the American public knowing that that was the result of code breaking. We couldn't have the Japanese knowing. But in the compound, they knew. And they remembered cheering going up in the naval code breaking compound when they knew that the plane had been yeah. shot down. A and again, I'm skipping over a lot here, but uh, because you do go into the codes, I'll eventually ask you about the, some of the more difficult ones to break. But Just don't ask me to break them. <laughs> But code-breaking became so important, just think about supplying the military. The Japanese, food, supplies, spare part, code-breaking went a long way toward keeping the Japanese military, the Army in particular, from getting what they needed. Exactly right. And that's where DOT comes in and, and the other civilian school teachers. So, and this is the part that DOT still has trouble getting her mind around that, that there were three code breaking operations in World War II that were the most important. And one was the breaking of the German Enigma cipher. The other was the Battle of Midway. But the other was the relentless breaking of the codes being used by the ships that were supplying the Japanese army. So the Japanese Navy's out there in the Pacific and we're having the Battle of Midway and stuff. But, but the army, the Japanese army has spread out on all these islands. They've taken Guam, they've taken the Philippines, they've taken all of these peninsulas and land masses and they have to hold them now and they have to be supplied. And they're being supplied by commercial ships called Maru's that have been commandeered by the Japanese army. And it is school teachers like Dot who are relentlessly breaking those messages as fast as they can. They say where the ship is coming from, where it's headed, what it's carrying. And often there was something called a noon position message that said where it would be at noon the next day, which is a, you know, what better piece of intelligence for an American submarine commander. Uh, so the Dot remembers running. She remembers running to the next station to take the message, you know, to get it along in the chain so they could get the messages broken as soon as possible and get the intelligence out to the submarine commander. And as a result of that, we sunk thousands and thousands and thousands of supply ships so that the Japanese army wasn't supplied, so that most of the deaths out there in the Pacific were the result of starvation and disease, Japanese army deaths. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, that's something that you don't hear a whole lot right. about. But right. so many deaths, thousands right. of, of Japanese dying from starvation. Right. Just right. think about that. Right, that yeah. They couldn't even live off the land. Right, right, yeah. And they would break messages. They would break messages in which they would see the results of their efforts. Messages would say things like, you know, we're chewing our rice raw instead of boiling it because it lasts a little bit longer when you do it that way. So they, they were seeing messages that told the effect that, that their work was having. You mentioned that uh, very early on, even before the war, that the code breakers were trying to break cro codes from diplomats. Yep. There was a Japanese diplomat, and I have to admit, this was something that I was not aware of, that you don't read ab about a whole lot in history books, that Japan had an ambassador to Germany. You know, we knew they were part of the Japan, Germany, Italy, part of the, the Axis, but you really don't hear a whole lot about how they communicated. But Japan had an ambassador to Germany who just was, he was in love with Germany, Hitler, and the guy provided so much information because he would send codes back to Japan, back to Tokyo, from Germany. Talk about uh, 
Ambassador Hiroshio Ashima. Ashima, yes, yes. So again, I mentioned uh, we had a code breaking, a smog code breaking unit the Army did before the war, and thanks to a woman named Genevieve Brochen, who was uh, had a master's in math from University of Buffalo. She wanted to be a college professor. She couldn't get a college to hire a woman to teach math before the war, so she was recruited in even before the war. And she had the central insight that allowed us to break that diplomatic communication system. So there are all these Japanese diplomats stationed in Europe, in occupied countries, in Axis countries, uh, and then Oshima's buddy-buddy with Hitler, just, uh, just as you said, uh, you know, admires him so much. And, and the diplomats are sending these very wordy messages back to Tokyo, to the central office in Tokyo, saying that everything they're hearing in Europe, everything they're learning on the street, everything they're learning from Hitler and Mussolini. And one of the most important messages was when the Japanese diplomats were invited to tour the coast of France. Hitler was very proud of his Atlantic Wall, the fortifications along the French coast. So they went and were wined and dined and admired the fortifications and dutifully reported back to Tokyo on where the coast was well fortified and where it wasn't so well fortified. So when we were planning the D-Day landings, that was incredibly important intelligence to have that Normandy would be a better place to land than, than Calais. You know, just as you were talking about it, I was thinking about the uh, all right, uh, Japan sending or the the Japanese ambassador sending codes back to Tokyo. What about on the other side? We don't write a whole lot about that. Uh, we obviously the Japanese, the Germans had code breakers trying to do the same thing right. with the Allies. Right. How successful were they? So the Germans uh, certainly had uh, success in breaking our convoy codes for a while and. Uh, I mean, that's interesting because we were working with the British, but at first the British didn't really trust us to keep a secret. They didn't tell us at first that they had broken the Enigma cipher, but as the war went on, we worked very closely with the British, and we had a special cipher for our, the convoys that we were sending, and the Germans broke that for a while, and it took us – the Americans had to convince the British that it had been broken. The British were somewhat unwilling to admit that that cipher was vulnerable. So, um, you know, these were – as a maker of codes and ciphers, you have to be somewhat humble, you know, like, yeah, they could break us, and we need to be on guard for that. And, and one of the things that William Friedman gets credit for is being willing to admit that we could be broken. Uh, so they were trying to, but, and I'm not a military historian, but what I'm told is the belligerent countries like Germany and Japan were more focused on belligerence and aggression than on intelligence gathering. So I think we were more assiduous in our efforts to break code systems. Moving ahead to uh, 1944, uh, Hitler's last hurrah, supposedly anyway, was the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, at that point, though, uh, Americans, the Allies, were surprised. Yeah. What happened before that? Yeah. So there was a there was a radio silence that we should have paid more attention to, and I don't think that it was the code breakers who were really at fault there. It was their inability to get sort of the higher ups to to listen to them. But yeah, the the Battle of Bulge was a big surprise and mm -hmm. enormous casualties, and Dot's brother was in it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're nearing the end of the war. One of the the stories that uh, I found most uh, fascinating was that the codebreakers actually knew when Japan surrendered yeah. before the president knew, uh, before President mm -hmm. Truman knew, mm -hmm. and uh, many of the higher-ups. And they had to keep it quiet right. uh, until President Truman. Talk about that. I mean, they had a lot of information. Not only couldn't they talk about it, but even before the president, 
the generals, all those people had yeah. to get Yeah, there were all these negotiations going on in Europe. Uh, there was some sense that the surrender would be coming. Uh, the, the Japanese were using the Swiss as a, a sort of an emissary. They couldn't communicate with us directly. It took me a long time to understand why that was, but the communication lines had literally been cut. Uh, and so they were going to be communicating through the Swiss, but they were, they were, and they were using sort of a lesser diplomatic cipher. Uh, and, and so the code, there was a lot of anticipation in the code-breaking unit because there were a lot of sort of pre-message messages saying messages are coming. The mess and so there was just a lot of anticipation and excitement. And it was this lone woman, Virginia Adderhout, who understood this lesser diplomatic system that this message was going to be coming in. And she was sitting at the machine sort of translating it as it was coming through. And she was being – all these code-breakers were pressing in on her because they wanted to see it. Uh, so they knew before anybody else did. They knew before, like even before the Japanese had translated their own message, uh, we, we, had, we had translated That's how good they were. Yeah. I, I want to take a step backwards in just the last few minutes that we, we have because this is important. Uh, the German U-boats wreaked havoc on shipping in the North Atlantic. For example, November 1943, they sank 43 ships and damaged 22 others. December 43, sank 32 ships, damaged 16 others. U-boats were, as I, I use the word havoc, it really was dangerous for allied ships, not just military ships, but merchant ships as well, to be traveling that area. And really, you got the sense that if Germany could win the war, that would be one of the ways that, that the they Atlantic. would do it. Yep. But codebreakers broke the, those U-boat codes. Right. And that was one of the keys to winning the war. Absolutely. I mean, Churchill said that the Battle of the Atlantic, that whoever wins the Battle of the Atlantic, which was the U-boat war, you know, is going to win the war. It was enormously important. And at our, the beginning of our, just as you said about the supply ships, when we entered World War II, Donitz, uh, the U-boats called this their happy time because we hadn't learned how to protect our merchant ships going up and down the, uh, the Atlantic seaboard. And so there was just massive carnage as the U-boats picked off our supply ships. And you could see you could see it happening from shore. The outer banks of North Carolina were called Torpedo Junction because of all the ships that got sunk. And people on the shore could see it. It was a terrifying time. And, and the Atlantic Ocean was cleared of the U-boats so that we could send the massive convoys over necessary for the D-Day landings. I mean, that was a huge effort just to get everything over there that we needed, and we couldn't have done it if we hadn't have cleared the U-boats out of the Atlantic. Well, Ms. Bundy, just a fascinating book, and it's a great read. And by the way, when I mentioned that it's in paperback now, right? Yes, 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 it is. And going to uh, – it's a, it'll, it'll debut at number three on the New York Times bestseller list, yes. <laughs> Congratulations. One final question from me, and then we'll take some questions from the audience. And that would be, I mean, obviously, this is, I read the book as a celebration of women in World War II. I mean, you see the posters of uh, you know, the, the women who worked in factories making uh, weapons, ammunition, keeping the war effort running physically. This is one part that you didn't read very much about. So it is a celebration of women in World War II. What do you think the, the legacy of these code breakers, the women, is. Well, certainly a legacy of women in the military. They were the, the Navy women were veterans. They got GI benefits. Some of them are buried in Arlington Cemetery. It was a tipping point for women in the military. But just as you say, it's important to remember that a lot of our STEM work was pioneered during World War II. Our early computers were developed to calculate weapon trajectories. And it was often women who were doing that work. Grace Hopper for the Navy, who you might have heard of. Her name is now on a residential college at Yale, finally. Uh, there was a group of women who were programming the Army's ENIAC computer, and a lot of this code-breaking work was
with early computer work. And so we still have these battles over women in technology because the women got you know, sent home after the war. And so we're still having these absurd arguments. Do women belong in tech? Why aren't there more women in tech? Maybe it's just not a field that women belong in when in fact women were pioneering this work during the war and we need to, we need to retrieve those stories. So want to open it up to questions now from the audience. If you have a question, just uh, raise your hand, stand up. Ma'am? Picture, the picture on your book, uh, what is it? What's the uniform they're wearing? Uh, that was the sort of the day uniform for the waves. They had, they had their regular blue uniform. They had dress whites. And then they had sort of a more casual day uniform. So in the end, they had more than one uniform that they wore. One other question. Uh, what happened to most of these women that weren't um, in the Navy after the war? Was Did they get benefits or did not get Did lives? not get benefits. I mean, DOT, for example, the civilian women working for the Army, they were for the most part sent home. They were told, thank you very much for your service, never tell anybody what you did. Uh, the Navy women got GI benefits, but sometimes they were shut out of the graduate schools, like architecture schools that they wanted to attend, where the slots were being held for returning men. One of the women in my book, you know, that had that specifically happen to her. Uh, but it's important to note that there was a, there was a cohort of women who stayed with this work even after the war and really devoted their lives to it. The wartime code breaking operations would eventually become the NSA, the National Security Agency, and there was a cohort of women who were among the first super grades at the NSA were women who came out of the war. One of them, Ann Cara Christie, who was 22 years old at the start of the war, would rise to become the first female deputy director of the NSA. So, uh, so that agency has real female origins. She was a superstar. She was a superstar, yes. In what way? Absolutely. Uh, she broke the, uh, she, she and a West Virginia school teacher broke the uh, address code that, that came at the beginning of every Japanese message. It told, where the message was coming from, who had sent it, where it was going, who it was going to, and that uh, gave us crucial intelligence about where the Japanese army was located, where they were likely to be traveling. It was called, it allowed us to build what was called order of battle, which, uh, which gave the Pentagon information about, again, about where the Japanese army was located. Is that 2468? Yeah, th that was the water transport code that DOT was working. That was the supply ship code system. But every one of those messages had a different um, at the very beginning, it had that address, uh, at and that, that mattered as well. Mm -hmm. Sit on that question. As a resource for the interpretation of the Japanese messages, were Japanese-American women ever recruited? No, I don't think. There were some, there were some Japanese-American men, uh, Nisei, I, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, who were uh, brought in. But I, I never saw any evidence of Japanese-American women being, being brought in to do that translation, which was... I'm sure a mistake. Yeah. What about German American women? Uh, I I, cu I couldn't say for sure. It it seems unlikely. Hmm. Uh, again, they were very paranoid in these in these uh, facilities about you know um, allegiance to an enemy nation. And we knew, and obviously we had our internment camps and did not avail ourselves of the patriotism of of, of um, many Americans. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? I think that's that's it. Oh, okay. What percentage of women were the actual code breakers, like Ellen Turing, who built the translation machines and wrote the cipher book? And how many, and like what percentage of them were just the people who went through the books to translate? Like, like if I gave you an English to German, uh, you know, dictionary, you know, just go through like that. 
I'm sorry, what percentage of our code-breaking force was female or? No, what percentage were the actual code-breakers who, like Alan Turing, built the translation machines and built the books and wrote the books that people went through yeah. as opposed to the just the people who went through the books and, uh, right. and wrote it down? So uh, just a couple of things. You know, our more than half of our code-breaking force was female. So we had 11,000-plus women doing this work. Uh, and there were many individuals who were Alan Turing-like who had significant breakthroughs, like I described, Aaron Care Christie breaking the address code, um, a group of, a male-female group that broke that 2468 supply ship system, Agnes Driscoll, who diagnosed how the Japanese Naval Fleet Code worked. So there were genius-type individuals, Genevieve Grochen, who um, had the insight that, uh, that allowed us to break the, the diplomatic code. So there were definitely genius individuals, and I would say there were as many women as men doing that sort of genius-level work. But it's also important to remember that this is really collaborative work, and sometimes we get very attached to the idea of an Alan Turing or a John Nash of Beautiful Minds. You know, we, we get, we, we, we're sort of in love with this narrative of the tortured, often male genius, you know, who, um, and, and these were such collaborative operations. They, uh, one reviewer described it as sort of the genius of a forest, really. They were people working together, mm -hmm. uh, very collegial, looking over each, each other's shoulder, remembering bits and pieces of things. So. It was really very rare for one person to have the breakthrough. It was really, really a group effort. And when you talk about rebuilding the machines, that's something we really didn't touch on. Uh, there was a facility, if you want to describe it that way, in Dayton, Ohio, where they tried to build some of- They did build. Did, that's right, they did build. They didn't really know what they were doing, but describe yeah. that if you would. Uh, so they weren't building replicas of the Enigma. So the Enigmas of this, again, this little handy typewriter-like machine that'll scramble the, every letter will, the letter E will go through a bunch of permutations and emerge as a, an X or something. Uh, and, and so what the, we had to build these giant machines in Dayton, Ohio, whose sole purpose was to for to figure out how the how the rotors had been arranged on that little machine, and so what the women had to do, and this was a technique that Turing pioneered called the probable word technique. They would look at the scrambled gibberish message, and they would know that it was a message that had been transmitted in the Bay of Biscay, and that it might be a weather message, and so they would conjecture because there's a lot of guessing in co in code breaking. They would conjecture that the German word Biscaya Wetter might appear at a certain place, and they would write it out below the scrambled, and then they would look, okay, well, so A has to become B, and, and X has to become I, and then they, would then they would have to figure out literally the permutations it would take to get uh, those letters to become what they were seeing, and, and they would have to design computer menus and plug them into these big machines and run the big machines to see if that was a, um, a possible combination, and then they then they would test it. I'm sorry, that's a very complicated, wonky explanation. Well, but, but still, yeah. I mean, you, you describe it in the book that at one time the Enigma, Enigma machine had three wheels. Yeah. And then the Germans added a right. fourth, right. which how many more combinations then? Yeah, a good gajillion, right. basically. I, yeah, I, <laughs> uh, yeah, because Turing broke it, and then the Germans became suspicious that the, uh, John and 
particular was very security confident, the, the German commander of the U-boat fleet. And he became suspicious that, we, that, that the Allies were reading their ciphers. And so they added this fourth rotor that would scramble it more and create more you know, exponential possibilities. And that's why we had to build these big, fast machines in Dayton that could test those. You had many women learning how to solder for the first time. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. <laughs> many Although other you know what? Some of them knew how to solder. They, they had grown up on farms. Like, they knew how to replace their iron core. I mean, like, they knew how to do a lot of stuff, these women who grew up during the Depression. Uh, yes. Heather, can you make it? Oh, we have one over here? Okay. Just the average work day. I'm getting the impression this was not a nine-to-five job. Thank you for asking that. <laughs> these were these were 24-hour code-breaking operations. And so the the women for the Army civilians, they called them shifts. The Navy women called them watches. And basically, they would work eight hours, but it might be from noon, it might be from midnight to 8 a.m. or from 8 to 4. Uh, and it varied. So they were tired all the time. Yeah. You know, That's a great question. I, right from the very beginning of the book, I mean, obviously, the information that these codebreakers had would be very valuable to the enemy. And the enemy obviously had people here for espionage. Were there ever any codebreakers who were targeted by Germans or any from anyone from the Axis countries? You know, not that I know of. The Japanese didn't have many spies, you know, in this country. Um, the Russians had a lot of spies, right, because they were our allies, and they were here. Uh, and I think, you know, there were German spies as well. Um, you know, the women were tested frequently to see if they could withstand. Uh, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the women I interviewed remembered there was a there was a, during the war there was a, a sort of a rule that if you had a car, you know, gas was rationed, there weren't a lot of cars, and you saw somebody in uniform, you, you could pick them up and give them a ride. And she remembered that she was walking up Wisconsin Avenue in the rain back to the code breaking facility, and this nice man pulled over to pick her up, and his wife was in the front seat, and she gratefully accepted the ride. And during uh, during the ride up to the compound, he said, "So." you know, what do you all do in that big compound up there uh, on Nebraska Avenue? And she said, oh, you know, this and that. No, I'm just a secretary. I don't do anything important. And they, because they had been sort of begin to been given a, a script. And the Navy women had a certain patch. It was a Q patch. It had a Q on it. And he said to her, so what does that Q patch stand for? And she hadn't been given a script for this, and she had to improvise. And she said, oh, you know, it's... um." Q for communications, because the Navy, you know, the Navy can't spell. <laughs> she just tried to laugh it off. And when, the, when he let her out of the car, uh, the, the, he reached over to open the door, and the sleeve of his raincoat hiked up, and she saw these gold bars. And she realized that it was an admiral and that he had been testing her. He had been testing her ability to not divulge. So I don't know. I, I really don't know the extent of spying, but they were certainly trained to expect spying and, and to rebuff it. But they were guarded all the time, at least when they were when working. When they were working, they were definitely guarded, yeah. Right. In the back. Yeah, um, this is a um, maybe a different type of narrative, but I was wondering in your research, did you come across any women who dissented from their work? I'm sorry, dissented? Dissented, yes. Uh, who dissented from the their work as code breakers? No, I, I don't think they would have done it if they if they had. And and, and I mean that's an important question because they knew that they were sinking convoys. You know, they knew that they were leading their work was leading to enemy deaths, uh, but they also knew that we were at war and that the lives of their brothers and boyfriends uh, depended on their efforts. So it was you know as I, as I said it was complicated work that they were doing. And after the war, 
as they became mothers, you know, themselves, they would think about the young Japanese men who lost their lives. But it's important to remember that code breaking shortened World War II by at least a year. And so ultimately they were saving lives on all sides in all countries by, by shortening the war. They actually knew, again, w when the United States, before the atom bombs were dropped, there were estimates of how many lives an invasion of Japan would cost. That came in code, right? Uh, as I, I, I believe so, yeah. I'm not an expert on that, but yes, I think so, yeah. Mm. They, were, they were getting a lot of different information from code systems um, before the war about, about you know, the extent of the Japanese Army's you know, willingness to resist, but then the diplomatic messages. The, the, the Japanese diplomats in Europe were you know, watching the firebombing of the, you know, the devastation of their homeland, and they were very, very distressed. So the codebreakers who were following the conversations with the Japanese diplomats were, were in some ways becoming very attached to some of the diplomats as they were you know, responding with anguish to what was happening. So we were getting a lot of complicated chatter, actually, mm. in different systems. You know, that must have been different because you're, you're following a lot of these same people. As you said, they became attached. Mm -hmm. But you're thousands of miles away. Yeah. And you, you talk a couple times about they actually felt something for when you know someone would be captured, died, or you know, it, it seems hard to believe they became attached. But yeah, yeah, it's like listening in on a phone conversation, right? I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly, we are running out of time, so we have time for just one more question. Okay. Uh, well, sir, I have two questions, really. One is, we know that when the British uh, uh, solved Im Enigma, they actually sacrificed things, people, resources, in order to not reveal that, uh, that they had broken the code. Did, did uh, the U.S. ever do that? And were these uh, women also involved in code making? Women were definitely involved in code making, which is uh, cybersecurity, basically. Uh, there was an communications was a female field, right? I mean, that was the other job you could get, telephone operator, uh, different kinds of communications. So there were a lot of women who were running the machines that were encoding our messages. And we had very good machines that were doing it. They were testing security. They were creating what was called dummy traffic to fool the Germans into thinking that we were going to invade in Calais by creating fictitious radio traffic. It was women who were doing enormous amounts of the communications work. They were following, uh, they, they actually followed the troops onto the Normandy beaches after D-Day and they were setting up phone lines and doing cybersecurity. So that part of your answer, uh, yes, women really were the mainstays of communications, both in terms of code, of enciphering our communications and then breaking enemy. The, the, the question about did we ever let um, you know, a ship be sunk or, or let uh, the enemy through I, I had a lot of military historians who were helping me with this book and, and you know, helping me understand this. And they were very skeptical of these stories that, that, um, that we sometimes we sacrificed ships or fleets. They, they really didn't think that that happened, uh, particularly on our, on our side. I, I can't speak for the British, and, but um, th that, that they, they were very skeptical that we ever would have done that. And again, like I mentioned, the the woman who got the message saying that her brother's ship was going to be targeted by a kamikaze, they let the Navy know immediately, and the Navy let the ship know, but there was just nothing they could do uh, to protect the ship from a kamikaze attack. Uh, so I, uh, based on people who know more than I do, I'm, I'm skeptical of that, that idea that we would sacrifice anybody like that. Oh, that was both of them? Okay. Uh, Liza Mundy, thank you very much thank for being you. with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me.